Hello and welcome to this week's panel edition of The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. On this week's podcast, fist fights at petrol stations, 10 arrests in total. Are we, or the government, mentally equipped for our Mad Max Fury Road future of supply chain disruption? All things bright and beautiful, is Labour finally emerging from the dark times in this week's party conference? We'll be asking our special guest Stephanie Lloyd, former Deputy Director of the Blairite Think Tank Progress, if the party's centrist dads, mums and neither can bring more to the table than a return to 1997. And in the week that the Bond movie finally, finally, finally comes out, is there still a place for national fantasy heroes, even if we can't quite agree what the country is about anymore? All that and more on this week's Bunker. Thanks for joining us again. We hope you're enjoying our burgeoning family of podcasts, including the new Culture Bunker on Saturdays. You can help spread the word about the bunker by forwarding the episode link to three friends who might enjoy it. It's super easy. The share button is right there on your app. Let's say hello to today's panel. First up, welcome back to recovering diplomat Arthur Snell. Hi, Arthur. Hi. So the International Criminal Court's new prosecutor has asked the ICC to relaunch its inquiry into crimes against humanity allegedly committed by the Taliban and Islamic State in Afghanistan. It seems a bit late for that. Uh, you are our international desk. What's, what's likely to happen here? Well, it's part of a very complicated story where the previous prosecutor wanted to do an inquiry into the whole Afghanistan situation, including looking at any potential crimes that might have been committed by Afghan national forces, but also controversially... US forces and even uh, CIA um, officials. So that led to the Trump administration reacting incredibly strongly and even putting sanctions on various ICC figures. So what's happening here is the new prosecutor who's come in, who's widely regarded as being a bit more pragmatic, he's trying to focus just on the Taliban and on ISIS-K in a way of sort of focusing on an area where there's likely to be some progress made. But ultimately, clearly, they're not going to be able to get any Afghan authority to cooperate with them. They'll be reliant on other countries working with them. Well, they're probably not going to get much help from Pakistan. The USA doesn't recognize the International Criminal Court and may be reluctant to uh, support it. So I think this sounds like an important thing, but I wonder if it will lead to anything. I mean, Afghanistan is sort of, I mean, it is immensely depressing, but it's kind of moved off the front pages now. What, what are you hearing about what the developments that are happening may be away from the front pages at the moment? It's, it's, it's not looking good. Well, it, it's very tough in the sense that you've got an extremely poor country with a government that is almost entirely unrecognised internationally, that is desperate for uh, aid funds, but also for various funds of its own to be unlocked, which are held in, in other places. Uh, There's quite a lot of reluctance on the part of the international community to budge on that. And meanwhile, the Taliban government itself is very divided. There was actually a big, literally a a, a sort of fistfight broke out inside the presidential palace between different factions within, within the Taliban. So, and of course, there's still loads of people trying to get out, people who are not aligned with the Taliban's values. So yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty awful, basically. Also back on the bunker, hello to Atlantic Magazine staff writer Yasmin Sarhan. Hi, Yasmin. Hello, or, or Guten Tag, I should probably say, after <laughs> day of German elections. Yeah, yeah, my, I do not speak the language, unfortunately. That's as good as it gets. How was that? Where were you? What did you see? What did you make of the early results? It was only a short trip, but I was in Berlin in Cologne um, for the final days of the election. And the results were, I think, 
more or less what a, what a lot of people expected. They showed the preliminary results, at least, showed the center-left uh, Social Democrats having a slim 1.6% lead over its current coalition partners, uh, Merkel's Christian Democrats. Um, now, that might sound very small, but I think it was a pretty seismic result for the SPD, um, especially considering you know just how low the party's morale was back in 2017 when it recorded one of its worst results um, in its history. Um, you know, I remember headlines at that time basically asking, is this the end of the center left in Germany? People openly questioning whether the SPD, one of you know Germany's main center centrist parties would ever be able to hold power again. But, you know, I think it's candidate Olaf, uh, the party's candidate, I should say, Olaf Schultz really shined during the campaign. He really tried to cast himself as the best and most trusted candidate to succeed Angela Merkel, um, who, despite being in power for 16 years um, in polling, voters were asked if they would reelect her virtually, you know, the vast majority said yes. Um, the, the rub, of course, is that, you know, we still don't know which parties will make up the next government or indeed who will even lead it. Um, all that is subject to coalition negotiations, which have already begun. Um, and it's worth remembering that the last time Germany had an election, it took, I think, about five months for Merkel to scrape together a coalition. So um, we can only hope that this one wraps up before the end of the year. But it was quite a, it was obviously a bit of a rout for the Christian Democrats separately from, from Merkel and not good for the extreme right AFD or the left-wing Delinke. So it's basically green centrism, your future of your German. I, I think, yeah, certainly. It's all but certainly going to be a part of Germany's future. Um, you know, with nearly 15% of the vote, the Greens will be one of the kingmakers of these talks alongside the pro-business free Democrats, um, which secured, I think, just over 11%. The Greens, that there was at one point where people were talking about they were soaring so high in the polls that people were wondering whether the, the, the government could be led by the Greens. Now, obviously, that didn't come to pass. There were there were a couple of scandals within that party. But, you know, I think it's an acknowledgement um, to the Greens' influence, as well as to the cr climate crisis more generally, that climate change was one of the top issues that were, you know, being discussed in this election, not just by the Greens, but every mainstream party was talking about this issue and going around the country and speaking to people. That was one of their main priorities. So I certainly think we'll be hearing from mo more from them um, in the years ahead, for sure. As I mentioned at the top of the show, our guest this week is Stephanie Lloyd, former Deputy Director of the Nerve Centre of Blairism Progress, now a Labour commentator and an Associate Director of Communications firm Blakeney. Hi, Stephanie. Welcome to the bunker. Thank you for having me. Uh, and you're actually coming to us from the Grand Hotel Brighton right now. I am indeed, yeah. Not not my fancy room, unfortunately, uh, but one that I borrowed from a friend. Um, but yeah, very much in the hub of, of everything Labour conference right now. So if the money mini bar's been emptied, we know why. So uh, we're going to be talking a lot about Labour's future a little bit later. But I mean, what has the vibe been like for this conference? Because we were talking a little bit before we, we started recording. Uh, progress is, is now more of a calling card, perhaps, than it was over the past five years. Yeah, it, I certainly didn't have to, you know, duck every time I saw certain people, uh, mostly because they weren't here. <laughs> um, but no, it's, it's a very, very different conference. Um, and in a really nice way, some people are quite you, people are almost kind of jaded walking around uh, that there's not quite the bum fights that there were or some of the sadness that there were uh, in previous years. But it's, you know, it's it's a really interesting conference so far. And actually, I think it's only, I think today is where it's really stepped into its stride, particularly with big speeches from, from people like Rachel Reeves really starting to set out that you know this is what the the new labor uh, and i no pun intended with that but you know this is, <laughs> this is this is the vision now for for the current labor party uh, going into the next few years and, and the next election 
What has been your highlight so far? Because Rachel Reed's speech was, was was really good, wasn't it? But what have been your personal standouts? I think for me, one of one of the most emotional parts of of conference, and, it, and it's what's made it so so unbearable for the last kind of five years or so, was seeing Ruth Smead, uh, former Labour MP, uh, stand up and talk about her experiences again, and fingers crossed, hopefully for the very last time, uh, when conference floor was debating uh, adopting the EHRC recommendations uh, and how the Labour Party would deal with any complaints, whether that be, you know, predominantly anti-Semitism was a huge part of that, but but any form of complaint, whether that is sexual harassment or, you know, homophobia, anything like that. And watching Ruth get a standing ovation on that conference floor was, you know, somewhere where she felt even safe to be on, to be on conference floor uh, was a really proud moment, I think, and a real turning point for the party. What did you personally make of the fact that uh, Rosie Duffield uh, didn't attend because her safety couldn't be guaranteed? There's been some black marks on conference. It hasn't all been sweets and lies. What did you make of that in particular? I thought it was, you know, a really, really sad position that that's how Rosie felt. I think I've been really heavily involved in LGBT Labour for a number of years. So, you know, this is a, I've followed kind of the twists and turns of this at, at every stage. I don't think it's, you know, there've been lots of comparisons to Luciana. I was working with her that year uh, on a number of events when she had to be followed by security guards. I don't think it is the same situation, but I do think any part where someone feels unable or unsafe to attend conference is unacceptable. But I also don't think this is just a Labour problem. I think the entire political debate at the moment has has descended to the sewer. There has to be a broader conversation. I think, you know, there have been horrific elements of that within the Labour Party is no denying and I've always been the first to say but but there is a wider problem here that needs to really be addressed. Britain's fuel crisis reaches another peak as Boris Johnson holds emergency cabinet talks over getting the army involved to deliver petrol. The government has suspended UK competition law in the fuel market and it is launching emergency visas for foreign lorry drivers with petrol sales up 180% on normal levels on last Friday alone. Are these proposed solutions the right ones? Are they big enough? How much of this crisis is self-inflicted and what lessons can we and the government learn from previous mega crises like this? So, Arthur, I want to ask you, on that suspending competition law to get petrol into the forecourts, you know, that seems to be antithetical to what this government is about. It's not exactly command economy, but it's interference on a level that they are ideologically not comfortable with. Um, Do you think the government has a grip on what's happening? Well... I suppose you could counter that they seem to be quite into the command economy, what with the furlough scheme and all the other sort of huge interventions. I would imagine that in principle, both Rishi Sunak and Kwasi Kwarteng are pretty uncomfortable with this kind of intervention, but on an emergency basis, they're perfectly happy to do it. I think in practical terms, this is something that they can do. It's a way of signalling to the public that they're taking an action which should, in a marginal way, ameliorate the issue without having to do something much bigger like bringing in the army, which they can keep that sort of arrow in the quiver for, for later on. What did you make of the of the weekend comms offensive from Nadine Dorries and large swathes of the Conservative press to insist that there isn't actually a fuel shortage, a fuel delivery problem perhaps? But then, you know, if you're the person that's trying to fill their car, a fuel delivery and the absence of actual fuel isn't much different 
at the uh, when you're on the forecourt, well, surely. Uh, indeed, and 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 Nadine Dory's treat with that funny little red car picture. <laughs> it's just really <laughs> really strange. I mean, as as I sort of describe with my, in my own case, you it's all very well to to sort of take an intellectual perspective, but by definition, particularly with cars, I mean, the, I'm sure the numbers of people who went with all the extra tanks and filled those are actually tiny, and of course they've all been shamed on on social media. For for an ordinary person, nobody is in a position to hoard fuel. You you have a single thing called a car which has a fuel tank, and you can put fuel in that. And I'm, it's not like I'm going with a tanker and, and you know, leaving with 500 litres. So I think it's rather difficult to sort of hector the, the public on, on their behaviour. And particularly outside metropolitan areas, you know, people's cars are an extremely important part of, of their life. And in some cases, for some people, they're an important part of their identity and, and, and more. So, And I would imagine that for a lot of those people are naturally conservative voters. So I think it's not a very smart political stance to be sort of hectoring people on how they behave around their cars. On a more serious level, the Bank of England's warned that we could see inflation rising above 4% this winter, largely as a result of household energy bills. We have been used for decades now to low inflation. And and of course, high inflation was the other part of the kind of 70s cocktail that we're always kind of taught to fear and be terrified of, you know, strikes, fuel shortages and inflation. Do you think the country's psychologically prepared for price rises? No, I don't think so. I think people aren't used to it. And people have forgotten what inflation feels like, the way in which it impacts people, particularly people on lower incomes, it hasn't featured in such a sort of visceral way that, that it could easily, uh, you know, in, in the coming months. So I, I think it's going to be very difficult. Yasmin, the government uh, has announced it's going to offer emergency visas to 5,000 lucky European lorry drivers who are clamouring to get back into Britain after we've been being horrible to them for the past five years. This has been described as everything from trying to put out a fire with a thimble full of water to the least attractive offer going, you know, come back but be out by Christmas. How has it got to this position where an emergency measure of such small proportions uh, has, has had to be taken? It kind of very much feels like even though there, there was talks about these these shortages, I, I think for a while that, you know, the sort of confluence of events, um, obviously Brexit and, and kind of the implications that it's had for labor and, and mobility, um, as well as the pandemic. You know, you talk about the, the, the tests that drivers now need to take to get to the UK, and apparently there's a massive backlog. So it, it really does feel like there's kind of a, a perfect storm almost when it comes to these issues. And as you noted, um, the British Chamber of Commerce um, likened it to throwing a thimble of, of water. I don't know what, how much a thimble is. Is that one of those British measurements we're going to get? That uh, Well, when imperial measures come back, go. of course, it'll, maybe it'll be a jill. Who knows? Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that's how they described the government's suggestion of, of, of these 5,000 visas for, for drivers. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it seems, I, I can't imagine that those visas are going to be dished out particularly quickly. Um, and even if they were the case, I think it, it seems like something of a stopgap measure to kind of get us through Christmas. But then, you know, whether it's it's a long-term uh, solution, though, I think kind of remains to be seen. This sounds very much like a sort of stopgap solution. And, and I think the government's going to, you know, have to think long and hard about if this continues to be an issue. I mean, obviously, Brexit is is kind of with us. It's it's this new reality that we're, we're in, and, and the pandemic doesn't appear to be going away then. Um, it's hard to see how, you know, just, you know, a, a short-term visa is going to solve these problems. It does seem to say a lot, though, doesn't it? The idea that 
The government thinks just by producing these visas, well, automatically lorry drivers will clamour to come and work in Britain where they've been subjected to a hostile environment and so on, and that they'll forget that it's a lot easier to make a lot more in Europe and you don't have to deal with you know being outside the single market. Just the assumption that they'll automatically come here. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to remember that, you know, for particularly for a lot of European nationals who, who left the country, um, but because of the uncertainty, you know, these people likely would have gone home and found work elsewhere. Um, so, you know, I think, as you mentioned, the pay has to be competitive. But yeah, there, there has to be, you know, you've got to give people a reason to, to want to come here and, and to have those offers be lucrative. I mean, to, to the government's defense, um, you know, I think there's also been talk of investing in training, I think up to 4,000 new drivers. And, you know, the, also talk of the Ministry of Defense deploying staff to help boost testing capacity for them as well. So, you know, I, I think those those are good steps, but but I think they they need to think very long term and not just about, you know, kind of addressing this this shortage in the short term. Stephanie, it's been common to compare this to the fuel protests of 2000, which were hugely damaging to Tony Blair in the early few years of his prime ministership. He briefly lost his poll lead before getting it back. Um, When you lose confidence over something as basic as this, as just getting the petrol into the cars, how do you get it back? Is these the kind of things that can be permanent confidence enders? I mean, they can be, but it's difficult to see anything yet that's really hit Boris Johnson in a way that you would expect to in the normal, the kind of normal run of politics. And also, I think the thing that's very, very different from this, from from the early 2000s, is whilst it feels very similar when you are, you know, I remember sitting in the car with my mum, you know, trying to get fuel. And I had actually bumped into a friend last night who turned around and said they were driving their children back up to London yesterday, had to come back down to conference and they ran out of fuel on the way home. And, Mm. you know, they'd tried to find, they'd gone past 15 petrol stations beforehand and couldn't get any, it had all gone. So they had to abandon the car and, and, and find a train station to get back to. But I think the thing that's very different with this though is it's, it's a very different scenario that's caused this. And it isn't something that you can just switch back on. And I think Yasmin was correct when she said, this is, it feels like a very short-term solution for something that they should have predicted coming. And it's, you know, I think it's yet another sign of, of this government's inability to look beyond the kind of next immediate crisis and try and tackle that in a very short-term way and have an ability to understand what the long-term implications of whether that be Brexit or different changes in work work circumstances, the impacts of the pandemic. We're 18 months into the pandemic. We're five years on from a Brexit vote. There should have been planning that, that had gone into this to stop these kind of crises. Well, what should Starmer and Labour be saying about this then, do you think? Because as you kind of alluded to, it's been very hard to make even questions of competence stick to Boris Johnson. What should Labour's tack be on this I mean, I think Keir was correct on Ma when he was interviewed Sunday morning about this. You know, this is a problem of competence. And I think, you know, whilst I think those of us that follow politics day in, day out, hear the same thing over and over again. And, and you know, you get you get almost bored of saying, like, there must be something new that we say on this. But the general public don't follow this in the same way. And I think what there has to be is just a consistent pointing out of this absolute inability to plan and to think through very seriously the basic things that people need in their daily lives. And as you say, it comes to a point where when it does come to something as simple as fuel, you know, a, a global pandemic, you know, people are very, very generous to to say this is a very difficult situation to navigate. But something as simple as we need fuel, we need basic infrastructure and we need key services to be able to run 
It's when people aren't able to go to work, take their children to school, ambulances can't fill up on fuel, what happens to, you know, all of our emergency services and the police. That's when you start to see the incompetence hit in a very different way that people expect you to be able to deal with. It reminded me, actually, and what you're saying there reminded me again of the fantastic Labour Party political broadcast in 1997 with Pete Postlethwaite in it, which went straight to issues of this government is failing to deliver, it's not competent, and the protagonists in the party political broadcast, it wasn't a kind of stereotypical working-class family being hit hard, it was Middle Britain family being hit hard, and that seemed to be a huge part of the 1997 message, which is that this government is failing the entire country. Well, that's it, and these are the people that Labour need to win over. They are the people that were the first to turn away from Labour when Jeremy Corbyn was elected, and, you know, even before that, uh, they didn't they didn't like Ed Miliband. They didn't want Gordon Brown to continue to be prime minister. And those are the people that win elections in this country. And, you know, it is those day to day, you know, issues and, and, and policy decisions that affect people's lives, where when you start to cause that much disruption in people's lives, it has a real consequence. Yasmin, the, the fuel shock of the early 1970s really does live long in America's kind of collective political memory. Even people who didn't experience it firsthand know what it was and know why it was so serious. Is that sort of part of your mental political furniture as well? I knew it was a thing. And even reading back on on the stories that were reported about at the time, um, you know, it was described as, you know, just completely terrifying and just this huge shock, which which I think certainly for people who have just lived through this pandemic can understand what that feels like. But, you know, I think for a lot of people, particularly those born after the 70s, um, you know, they, they've just lived in they haven't had perhaps a direct experience with that. And and it's worth noting too, and I, and I think Arthur kind of had noted this as well, that, you know, for large swaths of the United States, cars are like part of your way of life. I mean, unless you're living in a big city with great public transit, um, which, you know, is, is kind of few and far between in the United States, certainly compared to London, um, you know, you have a car and, and things are, it, it feels like a lot of the country, uh, at least I can speak for my native California, was kind of built with a car in mind. So, so to have a crisis uh, of this magnitude there, um, I, I think would be incredibly seismic. And, and I don't, I think you would kind of see similar, if not worse scenes um, than, than we're probably seeing here mm-hmm. when it comes to that. You know, I, I feel quite lucky in that sort of just being the city dweller that just relies on on the two <laughs> be- busy as it as it has become um, since we reopened that you know that this hasn't a- affected me as much that said I mean for even for families who live in the city for, for people who just rely on cars to you know get about their daily lives I, I saw a tweet by a journalist um, whose name I'm blanking but I think it was just so indicative of just you know how how difficult this is for a lot of families is he basically said he had to take the train to the hospital um, so that he would have enough fuel in his tank to, I think, take his one of his children to a birthday party. It's, I think it really just, you know, the fact that you're kind of in a position now where you have to choose, I think that's anathema to, to a lot of Americans who are used to driving even five minutes away, <laughs> to, to, you know, for anything. Arthur, just to, to wrap this up, I can dimly remember the three-day week just about. I can quite clearly remember the winter of discontent, because the most terrible thing happened for nine weeks. The comics didn't come out. I was like waiting for nine weeks to find out what happened next. What I mean, you're a bit younger than me. What, what sticks out in your mind in terms of grand national moments of crisis? Well, I was thinking about this. I don't think I can remember the winter of discontent. I mean, I was, I was alive. I know it was a very snowy winter, and I've got 
very happy memories of of sledging, which might have been that 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 <laughs> winter or or a different one, or, may, or maybe there were no there was no means of transport except except the sledge. I, I have no idea. <laughs> But I, I guess you know the, the the more recent ones. Certainly, I you know the the fuel crisis of of the Blair era was interesting because it was at a time when the possibility that that New Labour could be politically threatened by by the Conservatives sort of seemed to have evaporated, and then there was this sort of tiny period of a couple of weeks when they seemed to have a wobble, and then it went back to normal, and 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 it was just a little indicator of something that, of course, now. You know that Labour's in in such a tight spot. Uh, it, it feels like a very very different world. Let's go back to the Labour conference in Brighton, which you can reach by train, just about. Keir Starmer spent most of the weekend trying to pass internal party reforms. They just scraped through on Sunday. His deputy, Angela Rayner, somewhat grabbed the headlines for calling Tory ministers scum. Starmer distanced himself from her comments in an interview with Ma, but created new headlines on trans issues, on income tax and nationalisation of industries. Stephanie, you've been to many Labour conferences. Setting aside the change between this one and the last few... What are they actually like? What what gets done there? How are they qualitatively different from, you know, maybe other parties' conferences? I mean, I think I was talking to, to quite a few people last night and everyone was saying, particularly lots of journalists, you have to have to go to all. And uh, they were very much saying everybody really plays up to the... St- they are all just really playing up to the stereotype. So um, Labour's conference is very, very large in comparison to to quite a few. The thing that's really different with with Labour's conference is there is far more democracy in that way. So it isn't isn't the set kind of party piece that I think lots of leaders would love to have. There are always tensions, whether that be through, you know, what motions the trade unions want to go through, what are their big policy positions, what part of the party has the majority of delegates on conference floor. And and those things really define, actually, what happens at conference. You know, even a couple of years ago, when you think of the conversations about Brexit, that was all then, you know, hashed out in, I believe it was about a 12-hour meeting in the end, uh, about what was that going to, to be. So it's big. There's fringe events that are going on everywhere. Um, there's always some quite remarkable protests outside of all different, you know, shapes and sizes. Uh, there was a flash mob yesterday, but they're good fun. And I think particularly after the last 18 months, everybody's ability to just be together again. And, you know, politics is, is very, very little without people. So I think, you know, there is a, a good buzz around the place. It was kind of uh, a given before the conference began that this was supposedly going to represent, you know, Keir Starmer's last chance to save his leadership, last chance to relaunch himself ahead of a, an election that may come you know, as, as soon as 18 months to time, maybe. Were people right to warn about that? And do you think he's done it? I mean, obviously, we're talking before he's made his big speech, but do you think that he has pulled that off? Yeah, I think it's a little bit too early to say. I understand why there was lots of commentary around that. I mean, to be fair to Keir, he's had a very, very difficult 18 months as leader of the Labour Party. You know, he got to to be anointed as leader uh, in his in his living room, which is, is not the norm in any sense, uh, and just couldn't see anybody. It was also at a time where you had to put the country above party politics in that sense, and he had to, to join with the Conservatives as much as possible to try and encourage, you know, and find a way through the crisis that they were facing. So it was then very difficult to really distinguish yourself and who you are. And also, Keir's not a natural politician in that way that's not the life that he he lived before he became an mp he was a very very successful lawyer and 
there's a real transition to be made between those two things. And I think that's sometimes where a bit of his downfall can be. It's frustrating that, you know, the party reforms kind of dominate sometimes in the way that they do. But actually, I think, although it was, you know, not as originally intended as always, but it, they made some really important steps to, to stop the party from looking as inward uh, as it has done for a long time. And I think that will make a, that will make a big difference. But, you know, we've had some great speeches from Rachel Reeves today. Let's see. Let's see what the rest of conference brings, really. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big criticisms was that the party was devoting time to navel gazing on the internal procedural stuff. But I suppose the counter argument to that is that the party had to show itself in public to be kind of Corbyn proof if it's ever going to be elected again. And Mandelson was was uh, in the interviews this morning was pretty clear on that. You know, do you think it has managed to get that message across that there's you know even though the reforms are watered down that it's unlikely that there will be a kind of uh, a surge of enthusiasm, shall we say, from the uh, the left in the, in a way that produced a Corbyn. I think it does. And actually, I think one of the things that hasn't been reported as much, but is al- I actually think is almost far more important in some senses of, of stopping the party from looking in on itself, is the lifting of the number that's needed to deselect an MP and to get a new MP in. Because actually... I was I was at Progress at the time when the last kind of what is called in the very nerdy world that we have to have lots of these very strange terms for trigger balance. There were lots of people on the hard left and momentum who were trying to get rid of the large swathe of, of very good Labour MPs. And actually what that meant is Labour MPs, instead of out there talking to their constituents in their communities, you know, fighting for the things that they need, whether that's cuts or better services or better public transport, they were having to spend their time just talking to their members to, to be able to kind of just continue to, to do what they needed to do. So I think the combination of it's going to be very difficult for somebody like from that kind of wing of the party to get elected and also then through to stopping MPs from having to just talk and the party from talking to itself uh, is a huge step. And And to be honest, I think, you know, even as we've seen today, that was one day and it, it built up uh, lots of the coverage that was going into conference, but they've really hit the ground with, with a lot of policy. Um, and I think that's going to continue over the next two days. Arthur, by definition, as we were just saying, it's only really wonks and obsessives who play ve- very, very close attention to party conferences. What's your impression of the Labour conference from a distance as a as a semi-disinterested party? Well, I, I might be an uninterested party. Um, I, <laughs> I think a couple of things. I, I certainly recalled a time when the party conferences were big news. And maybe that was just because era of there being three channels on TV, one of them was showing party conferences wall to wall. So as a sort of bored kid, you would end up watching them and wondering what what, what all the fuss was about. I The impression I have is, well, certainly the, the degree to which political parties shape the national agenda is much less than it was. And my understanding is that Although I would, I'd certainly d- defer to Stephanie on this, but my understanding is that the the degree to which they are really significant for the parties themselves has dropped a little, and and you know some MPs don't don't go to it anymore and that sort of thing. Having said that, while we've been recording this uh, live news breaking, Andy Macdonald, who is in the sh- shadow cabinet, has resigned and and has has issued quite a sort of stinging criticism of of Starmer. And his approach on on the minimum wage and and the way which party conferences can provide set pieces for that kind of drama, I suppose, are still quite important. Hmm. Well, that was news to me. I didn't even know that had happened. We're looking at it here, and it says, one minute ago, says the BBC here. Right, okay, instant reaction, Stephanie. What do you make of that? 
I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised that that's happened necessarily. I think when Starmer talked about unity, there was lots of kind of what does that really mean? There will always be actors within the party who want to use, as, as Arthur said, you know, the thing that, you know, they don't drive the national news in the way that they did before, but they do have a large majority of journalists sat walking around looking for stories. So if you want to do it, there are, you know, lots of journalists to go and speak to and lots of TV cameras that you can immediately walk in front of. So it's a very good time to do it. But I don't think it will really resonate. I don't think it will matter much. I think we're too far out of an election. And if this is seen as a situation where, right, this is a break from the old and and what went before, I think that's only going to help Keir. Yasmin, um, our conferences are very different from US political conventions. A lot less razzmatazz, as Stephanie was just saying, loads more policy-making elements, at least on the Labour side. Is it better to see the sausage being made in public the way the Labour Party does? I mean, it might not be beautiful, but you get an idea of what's really going on. I think so. I mean, I was I attended my first conference, I think it was 2018. And yeah, I mean, I was kind of blown away by how you could just have all these politicians and then all these just normal people, I mean, albeit a lot of them like sort of political nerds, like the people who probably listen to this podcast, no offense to them all, um, you know, who, who kind of <laughs> gather and, and really hold them accountable. And, you know, I think there's something quite healthy, um, democratically speaking, about that. I mean, you know, U.S. conventions, as you mentioned, you know, they're not as frequent and, and they always tend to be centered around electing a, a party leader. Uh, you know, we don't really have those, but a presidential candidate at the very least. Um, and, and, and in that respect, there's, you know, there's a lot of fanfare and, you know, it's, it's all centered around, you know, this contest that we have every four years. But, you know, I, I think the idea of having these regular annual meetings where, People can go and, and address their, their representatives and, you know, as you said, see how the sausage gets made, ugly as it may be at times. But by that same token, also having lawmakers and parliamentarians engaging with their representatives and, and you know, really seeing what, what people think and, and want, um, I, I think is, is yes, yeah, is, is really a important and a good thing. You know, I, I, it would be interesting too, I think, to see you the U.S. do that. I mean, I'm sure to an extent that there are meetings like that in the U.S. I, I don't cover U.S. politics as close, closely, so I can't really speak to that. But, you know, I think this notion of having, um, you know, a membership in a party and really being part of it and not just, you know, being a registered Democrat or a registered Republican, um, I, I think there's something quite quite healthy about that from, from a Democratic sense. So I, I would I would certainly welcome it. We should probably talk a bit about the Angela Rayner row, um, where she reter- referred to Tory ministers as a bunch of scum. It- it's unusual, isn't it? Because it kind of shows there is still a schism in the Labour Party on approach and on style and class is a perpetual preoccupation. The reactions, people seem to be split between saying, well, that's fair comment, it's only true, or, well, it might be her opinion, but it's not very clever politics to say, it's not productive, all the way to, well, that's disgraceful language, oh my gosh, she's so common, nobody in politics should, should behave like that. What, what, what did you think of it as somebody who is, again, sort of, you know, you're looking at it as somebody who's, you know, looking at our political culture from a bit of a distance perspective? I think to the extent that I mean, obviously, it's not the most diplomatic thing to say, certainly. And, and if you fancy yourself a future leadership candidate, then, then you know, may, maybe it's not, not the words that you'd want to be using. Certainly uh, not, you know, if you're trying to pass policy with, with the support of some conservatives as well. But, you know, as for the sort of whole that's common language, I, I don't think I'd go that far. I mean, I think what it is indicative of is the fact that we've kind of passed a point in politics on both sides of the Atlantic where I think people just think they can 
be a bit more blunt and, 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 you know, just not really have as much of a filter. I mean, I, I know that this is kind of, you know, an extreme example, but I mean, we think about all the things that Trump has tweeted um, over the, of the last four years of his presidency. I mean, I think I've almost become quite immune to this notion of, of, of politicians and leading people just, you know, saying sometimes what, what could be regarded as, as quite crass or outlandish, even if indeed their supporters think it's spot on and very true. But by that same token, though, you know, I, I think the Labour Party would, would probably fancy itself being a party that would want to bring, you know, a respectable politics back. In that respect, I think it's probably not, not the best choice of words or probably be my position um, on it. Though, you know what, it, it also, I think, depends on, on what Rayner's aim for those comments, right? It could have been an off the cuff off the cuff comment um, that perhaps she regrets, but also she's trying to reach out to to reach people who who agree w- with that sentiment um, to to really sort of galvanize the base in that way. Then then maybe it's had its desired effect. And as for the people who disagree, then you know maybe that they just she pays no mind to that. I, I'm not sure. Stephanie, just before we wrap this up, obviously the party is changing and the more centrist elements in the party are in the ascendant. The criticism from the left that the kind of cuts deepest is that the centre doesn't have any new ideas, that not being just not being Jeremy Corbyn and not John McDonnell isn't enough. Do you think there are enough signs of new thinking? There are not just uh, new policy ideas, but that there's new philosophical thinking that might take Labour into another election with a fresher offer. I'd certainly like there to be more of that. And I think it's absolutely right. You know, one of my biggest fears you know, when we went into the last leadership election, lots of people turned around to me and said, but we just need to make a break from the past. And I was like, but that isn't enough. The Labour Party doesn't exist to just be the official opposition, although at times it feels like that is what we are just there to do. It exists to be a party of government. And if it wants to be a party of government, it has to have a real break. And the only times it has ever done that in those those three big moments are when they looked the biggest challenges facing the country, not just now, but the ones that are going to come, you know, over the next 10 and 20 years, and really said, this is what the country can be like. This is, you know, it's hopeful. It's got new ways of thinking. It's not, as you say, it's not just policy ideas. It's also an entire vision for what the country should be and our place in the world that runs through everything. And I think currently Keir has had to spend the last 18 months trying to put just a bit of water between him and and the Jeremy and, you know, the Corbyn years in that sense. But there has to be something bigger. And I I would like to see a lot more of that. That for me is, is, is the most important thing because just being in politics for the sake of politics is pointless, saying that you are a centrist without any, you know, only define it. If you only define yourself as by what you're not, then nobody's going to care. And that's why we've lost the last four elections. Um, Because, you know, all we did was distance ourselves from what were our, you know, recent successes. And then, you know, we just, we fought inwards and and unfortunately we played to the base and that was exactly what Angela did. And, you know, the people that have stood in that room at Labour Party conference in a a very warm, very musty, uh, awful white wine and bad canapé room they're already pretty committed. They don't need to be riled up in that way. And all it does is turn out to all of those people who are looking for an alternative from the current government, it just turns around and goes, it's still not you. And they're just disappointed that they don't have an alternative. 
The 25th James Bond film, No Time to Die, has sat in the can for such a long time that when it comes out this week, it may well look like a pre-COVID period piece. All those bullets flying around and not one single person wearing a mask. So dangerous. Bond has been an ever-changing national symbol for almost 70 years now. He was a cynical, world-weary, heavy-smoking end-of-empire figure in Ian Fleming's original conception, then a playboy, a cartoon, and now back to a version of the battered original in the Daniel Craig incarnation. With his refusal to let emotion touch him at all and his fondness for luxury goods, Bond is a fantasy for a certain kind of British male and a very exportable idea of Britishness too. Famously, Craig's Bond escorted the Queen to her parachute jump at the 2012 Olympics opening ceremony. This has been the longest gap between Bond films, years and the last time Craig was out and about was before Brexit, before Covid, before the collapse of our politics and the possible disintegration of Britain itself. So can you still have a national symbol even more as complicated as Bond in a country that's drifting apart? Arthur Snell, are you a Bond follower? Uh, I admit I do like to watch Bond films so yes. What kind of role does he play in the national psyche because there's been lots of different Bonds hasn't there? Yeah well I think that's part of the point that now that it's been going for so long, there's sort of a bond for everybody. You pick your bond and it, and it corresponds to your particular sort of take on, on where Britain is. But the one thing it, it has done consistently through all the sort of ups and downs is it, it allows Britain to see itself as a much bigger and more important country than it actually is. And of course, that's that's really helpful for for people's uh, sort of mental well being, I suppose. The ironic thing, though, is that Ian Fleming sort of conceived him as this kind of a figure of sort of British decline. You know, we were kind of not really that important in the world anymore. And Bond is constantly sort of making these asides about how the world's going to the dogs and foreigners and cosmopolitans and so forth are, are, are running the show now. How did that turn into this kind of figure of world famous, classy Britishness and Eaton and Rolls Royces and so on? It probably helps that all the films are made by Americans, and so maybe they, they know better how to how to sort of put put that sheen on it. I mean, it's it's undoubtedly the case. Fleming's books, whilst you know they have some literary merit, that they're, they're quite problematic. Um, <laughs> where you take your pick with the racism, the uh, the violence against women, the alcoholism, and so on, and of course some of that is also in the films, although it tends to be a bit toned down. So I think I think there is this thing that it. And even in the films, there is a bit of that. It, it's Britain in decline, mm. but fundamentally, the sort of incredible heroism of Bond normally defeats all, all, all comers, and therefore it does allow it allows you to think that that Britain is is somehow capable of sort of pulling it out of the bag when the chips are down. What have, what have you made of the Daniel Craig version? Who's getting his, his last outing? He's, he's the he's definitely the most conflicted Bond. He's the Bond where we found out most about his past. The relationship with M, Judy Dench's M, was much more drawn in emotional terms rather than pre- previous M's. What, what have you thought of the Craig Bond? I felt that it was an attempt to get as close as you can to the Ian Fleming Bond without taking on board that stuff we were talking about earlier. So you mm. get this dark, damaged character who has no doubt because of his bizarre life experiences been sort of rather hollowed out. And, of course, we're living in an era where there's deep cynicism about the state and about the idea of there being a deep state which is doing bad things and we don't know exactly what they're up to. So that has to be built into the... In, in, into the um, into the sort of storylines. So I, I, I think it, it's the right bond for our times. I'm, I'm not a massive fan of Daniel Craig's portrayal. I don't know. He, he, he can be quite, he seems a bit wooden some of the time. 
But that's Bond. That's how you've got to play him. He's a man without an interior. That's that's what that's why he's good at it. Yes, Yasmin, we can reveal exclusively that you've never actually seen a Bond movie. How have you managed this? Um, living under a cultural rock, as it turns out. Yeah, I'm a little embarrassed now. You guys were talking about these whole premise and these different characters and in a letter that I assume is a person, and I just have no idea what you're talking about. So, um, yeah, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> Maybe that's what I'll I'll do this weekend. I guess or, or sometime I'll catch up. We need another lockdown. Then I'll have the time. <laughs> Exactly, you can do all twenty-five and then report back on them. Famous, I don't. Have you watched any of the Bond movies? Because so famously, they, this was the kind of supposed to be the, the 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 modern spin on Bond, where the agent is actually betrayed by his handlers, and the Bond movies are so kind of modern and uh, a kinetic version that that sort of led to the upgrade of the of the Bond franchise. But before Bond, Bond was a bit of a joke. Did you watch any of the Bond films? That was Matt Damon, right? I think so. It would have been ages ago. Yeah. I don't really remember. I'm, I'm sorry, guys. I'm not. I'm, I'm. I'm quickly learning, and I didn't know this about myself before this conversation. I'm not not much of an action film person. I don't think. Stephanie, you like Bond? I love Bond. I'm, I'm, I'm utterly unashamed to say it as well. I think it's just a wonderful bit of escapism, uh, and I, I've already I've already got them in the diary as to when I'm going to see it with various groups of friends. And it will be none of these kind of small cinemas where someone can order a pizza halfway through. It will be like the big traditional big screen, lots of explosions, uh, and a big bucket of popcorn. So no, I can't wait. I've been yet yeah, desperate for this to come out. So as as Arthur was just saying, that you know there are different kinds of bond, and he's just changed as as time has gone by. But can you actually do the guy who's the extension of sort? He's effectively an extension of global Britain, isn't he? He's global Britain, sort of hidden power behind hard power. Can you do that when you can't actually do a Union Jack parachute anymore because the Union Jack might not mean anything? Is it? Are we going to get to the point where his time has gone? I don't think so necessarily. I don't think we're anywhere near that stage, and I think. There's also something about the fact, though, of, of the kind of history of British in, of British institutions that people love. And, you know, I think that's what makes it quite fun and quite exciting. And, you know, it allows you to just think of a slightly different world, you know, albeit a slightly ridiculous world, mm-hmm. but a very good fun one. And, you know, I think it, I think it has done a very good job of moving slightly more with the times as to where it is you know as as Arthur said you know the books are a far cry now in lots of ways from from what the films are but I think that's it's just growing and adapting with with the times and how it is and I think you know sometimes you just like a good action film that question of like moving with the times the big question is of course like why has he always got to be a white male from an upper class background and there's been attempts to, to do like the kingsman series what would a working class bond be like it's a great premise but they sort of play it for pastiche and laughs rather than sort of really digging into it why shouldn't there be a female bond why should bond always be white arthur this is craig's farewell and the end of this version of of, of bond where should it go next there is actually going to be a female 007 in the next one but she's not actually bond she just has the designation 007 i can understand that that debate always always goes on you can imagine maybe they'll they'll have someone who 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 is is not from you know who who isn't white basically in the future. God knows. One of the things about the Daniel Craig movies, I just felt they took themselves a bit too seriously, and and there is something joyous about the Roger Moore kind of pantomime James Bond, and and I I, I know that some of it it comes across in the, to the modern eyes as awfully sort of sexist it's almost sort of Benny Hill meets James Bond but I I think that one of the nice things about those films is they're they're very funny whereas the Daniel Craig movies don't seem very funny and it would be nice to have a bit of the funny 
Act. So if there's a way to do that without without reverting to the the sort of 1970s um, uh, sexist humour, I think that would be nice. And just finally, I mean, he was kind of created out of a Britain that was in decline, a Britain that was kind of gripped by the original version of austerity, a Britain where kind of class divisions was suddenly found to still be there after the the convulsions of of the Second World War. We're now going into a world that's not actually going to be that wildly different. Um, do you think there's always going to be a place for this kind of emotionless, you know, white upper class killing machine as a kind of fantasy uh, for certain kinds of viewers? Well, it's it's proved its ability to reinvent itself. I think it's 60 years next year. So I think mm-hmm. the, the capacity for reinvention is always going to be there. And and I I imagine that there ultimately this the part of this is is a business franchise. Seems to me that there will be uh, enough ways for for the for the franchise to keep keep sort of churning them out. Also, I, I imagine that it it it's always possible to watch a Bond movie and say, "Oh, well, Britain was in decline at this point," because that's a just a statement of fact about Britain's trajectory over a six year period. But in a way, I, I slightly to, to what Stephanie was saying, you know, the viewer just wants some fun, a good action movie with lots of of sort of uh, nail-biting scenes and as long as you keep delivering those i think there'll always be a place for for james bond movies and that brings us to the end of this week's bonker and as usual it's time for escape routes what are the films tv shows books music miscellaneous activities that have been taking our minds away from the bruising world of politics yasmin how about you what have you been uh escaping to so i've just started watching um a series called the squid game which is a south korean survival drama um, on netflix um without giving too much away it basically centers around a a group of cash-strapped uh people who are invited to participate in a series of children's games things like red light green light if if you remember that from growing up um with the hopes of, of winning a huge cash prize that can help cover their debts but the games are incredibly high stakes, and I'll probably leave it there. Um, and, and I think, yeah, I mean, it's just it's it's incredibly riveting. Apparently, I can't watch Bond films, but I can watch incredibly creepy <laughs> South Korean dramas. Um, but but I will say, I think it's just you know another example of the success of Netflix's foreign language productions. Um, you know, if you enjoyed Money Heist, if you enjoyed Fauda, I think you know it's just it's it's another really cool show that I think I probably wouldn't have come across if it hadn't been for Netflix. So um, I'm I'm still in the middle of it, but so far I would recommend. Mm, it's a good game. Sounds good. Arthur, how about you? I went to the cinema for the first time in a year and a bit last uh, over the weekend, which was in itself exciting. I probably could have stared at a blank screen or watched adverts, <laughs> and that would have been that would have been the hit. But what I did watch was this movie called The Alpinist. Now I'm into climbing mountains, so it's completely up my street. But even if mm-hmm. you're not into climbing mountains, it's worth seeing. It, it it's a movie about a young Canadian solo climber who climbs up these terrifying looking sort of faces of of ice and rock and so on but it's really beautifully shot it's one of those films that you really want to see on a big screen endless sort of tracking shots whizzing over high mountains and and incredible sort of wilderness scenery and and a really fascinating uh story so yeah for find the alpinist movie for people who like having Vertigo in the yes. cinema. Sounds great. Stephanie, how about you? What's been your uh, mental uh, emergency escape route? So I'm also halfway through Squid Game. So that's uh, ah. interesting. I mean, yeah, slightly strange. I love a good horror film as well, though. So that's always been fun. So the new 
Fear Streets uh, on Netflix were excellent. Um, but I'm mostly just excited that everything's now coming back again. Uh, now it's getting cold and I can just kind of stay in without it being a legal requirement. So, yeah, the idea of succession coming back is very exciting. Uh, the morning show's always been a good one. A niche classic, but the, the new series of The L Word uh, is, is one of my favourites. So, you know, if you're a big fan of, of lesbian drama, feel free to, to head to The L Word. It's excellent. I didn't know they brought it back. I thought it finished years ago. It finished 10 years ago uh, and they were hoping that somebody else would kind of pick up the mantle and then nobody did. Uh, so, yeah, there were, there were the continuous traditions of lesbians either being Victorians or in prison. They continued. But other than that, no. So they came, it's now the second series they've rebooted it. So, yeah, good, good bit of fun escapism, that. Well, mine is even more escapist. It's uh, the Apple TV Plus adaptation of Foundation, the Arthur C. Clarke super cosmic science fiction thing. And the weird thing about it is that the core idea of the Foundation trilogy by Isaac Asimov is that if you have people in large enough numbers, i.e. the tens of trillions, you can predict everything they're going to do with mathematical accuracy. They call it psychohistory. And now we're in the world of Cambridge Analytica where you actually can do that. So the idea that you can predict the future from large groups of people and big data has weirdly come true and it's been turned into this visually gorgeous uh, space opera on uh, Apple TV Plus right now. Worth seeing, and the first episode is free to watch, so you might as well give it a go and see what you think. So that's the end of this week's bunker. Uh, thank you, Arthur Snell, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Yasmin Saran, for joining us. Thank you. And thanks to our special guest, Stephanie Lloyd. My pleasure. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full length show this time next week, and of course, the new Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Remember, if you like this podcast, you can forward it to three friends using the handy share button on your app. It will all help spread the word about the bunker. And if you really like it, then you can support us on Patreon for early episodes without adverts and all kinds of extras too. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Now it's time for some shouts to our latest Patreon backers. Many thanks and the very best from me to Laura Offer, Quiet Knight, and Karen. Very many thanks and best wishes to James Oliver, Megan Ketsley, and Alexandra Boyle. And finally, hello and a big thank you from me to Andrew Besford, Raj Ranjendram, and Johnny Lose. Thanks for listening and we'll see you all next time. The Bunker was presented by Andrew Harrison with Arthur Snell and Yasmin Saran. This is some producers for Jacob Archbold and Yolanda Sofranievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.